turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I know some of you are, uh, would like to have an update on pastor. We don't know uh, too much. Uh, there is one thing that you can pray about. Uh, the cancer seems to be beyond the esophagus. From what I know, he will be starting therapy uh, sometime this week. So that's something that you can pray about. It'd be chemotherapy and radiation every day for 35 days. And uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty aggressive approach. And so we need to need to pray for him. And just for strength. Strength where his body, as his body uh, has to endure that. Um, some difficult times ahead. So, Well, John chapter 16. I'll begin reading in verse 25. <clears throat> These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day... You will ask in my name, and I do not say that you uh, say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come forth from the Father. I have come forth from the Father, or I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and I am leaving the world again. And going to the Father. And his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you have come from, the fa- from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and now has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to, to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there's much to worry our hearts these days. There's much to be concerned about. There's much to, uh, to, to worry and to fret over. But yet, Lord, there's much to rejoice over as well. We are privileged people. Lord, help us to see that privilege. Help us to understand these deep truths that are spoken so clearly in your word, and yet they're so profound, they just elude us. I do pray that as the word goes out, that it would be as clear as possible and that your Holy Spirit would give illumination to us, we would apply it to our lives, and we would go away different than when we first approached this passage. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard it said, and I've used this saying that uh, that the, this is um, life is not fair. Life is not fair, and that is a reality. It's not fair. If it was fair, I would have hair. Now that rhymes, but it wasn't intended to rhyme. But 
Lives is not fair. Some people are born into privilege. I remember flying over uh, D.C. or or not D.C. but um, San Diego. And beautiful place, and it, it flies. You fly over the, the harbors there, and and the the yachts, the huge boats that people could sell the world, and and that's just that's their life. And I think, boy, life's not fair. I, or or San Francisco, you see the same thing in the bay there. It's just beautiful, all kinds of beautiful boats, and or you've been to maybe Palm Springs or or. Uh, Hollywood Hills, our cat, before we moved to uh, uh, Pennsylvania, we had a cat in California and we needed a home for it because we couldn't travel with it. And, and there was a lady and she said, oh, just, you know, here's our address. And it was Hollywood Hills. And we, she wanted the cat. And, and so we drove up to Hollywood Hills and boy, we were astounded. Just, uh, it was incredible, the homes. And we think, wow, a life of, of privilege, a life of Really, a life of ease. Palm Springs, the same thing. You've seen these beautiful homes. When you go to L.A., you can, there are certain neighborhoods that you can drive through and you might get a glimpse of between the hedges of, of a home that's just beautiful and you think, privilege. But then, then you understand that sometimes they kind of take that privilege for granted. Those, those people with the homes, and they just kind of they just live in that world, and they just kind of take that for granted. I knew, that, I knew uh, a, a young man when I was growing up, but he was just a good friend. He was just one of us. He was just a good old boy, and we, just, we didn't have two nickels rubbed together. One, one time, uh, Keith came back from uh, just, a, it was just a, a weekend on a Monday, and we were just talking, and he said, yeah, he said, uh, my dad uh, sold one of our mines over the weekend. And uh, how much does a mine go for? And he said, well, we sold it for $3 million. And I thought, $3 million, that's profound to me. That was just blowing my mind, you know, these high school boys. But he just kind of took it for granted. It was just part of his world, part of his life. Now, we didn't know that about Keith. We tend to do the same thing, though. We kind of take things for granted. The privileges that we have, we take them for granted. For example, there's many people around the world that look at America and they say, man, what a privilege to be born in America. What a privilege to to have that that freedom, to be able to travel, to be able to have those forms of communications that you have, to have the, the wealth that you have, the upward mobility, the ability to go educate yourself and get a better job. Man, what a, what a privilege. I think, man, that's, that's true. We, we're privileged. I know uh, even, even with our, our home, it's becoming now a, to, a privilege to have an intact home. That you know your mom and your dad and your grandparents. And, and they, when you get together, you can take that for granted very easily. But it's a privilege. It's a privilege, isn't it? And we easily take that for granted. Or sometimes we, we envy those with, with privilege and we don't realize our own privilege. That we are a privileged people. Now, that's the same situation that you find yourself here in this passage. These disciples, they were privileged. But they didn't get it. 
they didn't quite see it. In fact, they were bemoaning the fact, we see in this uh, context here, they were bemoaning the fact that Jesus was going to leave them. And, oh, bad, life is bad, life is bad. And Jesus is encouraging them. And he, toward the end of this conversation, and we're ending at chapter 16, and then he just prays, and that's chapter 17. But he, at the end of this conversation, he kind of slips in to just very subtle very subtle privileges that these men have. And, and they're just profound. And he just kind of slips them in and, and he, he kind of guides the conversation so that he'd be able to say these two things. And John points these two things out to us. And we find that these men were privileged and they did not seem to get it. Now here's what I want us to see. Here's the point. The simple act of believing in Jesus Christ has such a profound effect on the on believers that it takes time and teaching for them to realize the implications. Being saved, being a part of the family of God, believing in Jesus Christ has such a profound effect on us that it takes a while for it to soak in before we realize it. Before we even understand the implications. And that's exactly what was happening with these men. It it just hadn't penetrated yet. But yet he points out two main things. And you know, we're the same, we're the same way. We don't quite get it. We don't quite understand what God has done for us. And we look in the book of Ephesians. Paul, that's the purpose of the book is to point out that you have a privilege there. And he says, I pray that you would understand that privilege of what Christ has done for us. Now, when we look at this, and here's the question we're going to answer. What are are the two most profound results of believing in Christ? Profound results of believing in Christ. Jesus gives us two of these here. And they're, quite frankly, they're, they're over my head. And we can't get into them in very much depth. But there's something that we ponder throughout the rest of our life that will have a huge impact in our life. So here's two profound facts that, that God gives concerning the believers. And He just so masterfully leads this conversation to make these points. And again, you know the context. He's encouraging them. And He ends on these two precious truths that will completely change their life when they grasp them. Number one, number one, look at this. The God of the universe who is offended by, very, by, the, uh, by the very presence of sin in His universe loves those sinners who believe in Christ. That's profound. It's hard to even grasp. Look at verse 25. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. Now, Jesus sometimes throughout his ministry would use figurative language. And he would do so a lot of times as a, as a judgment. As a judgment. But when we look at it, it's really an act of mercy. Turn over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. Now, Jesus is beginning to use parables. And he says this. His disciples question him. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus said, answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And to them it has not been granted. For whoever has 
to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Now he's talking about these scribes and Pharisees who, who actually have who, who have had the truth, but they have come to the conclusion they reject Christ. They reject Christ. They don't want to have anything to do with Him. They have already made up their mind, and Jesus is then going to hold back revelation from them. It is not going to be given to them. And so the very little that they have is going to be even taken away. And they had some revelation. They had the truth, but they rejected that truth. And God says, okay, that's enough. And he begins to teach in, prince, uh, in parables. And his disciples could pick it up. And sometimes the disciples would have trouble as well. But figurative language. Look over at John chapter 9. No, I'm sorry. Stay there because there's a couple more verses in uh, 13 that I want you to see. Matthew 13, verse 34 and 35. It says this. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was prophesied, or what was spoken by the prophets. Uh, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will uh, utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now turn over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Jesus sometimes would speak in in parables so that they would not understand. Those who had ears, those who were spiritually inclined, they would get it. They would understand it. But those who had rejected Him and spiritually calloused hearts that were hardened, uh, they would would miss the truth. So it was an act of of judgment. Look at verse... Chapter 9, verse 39 says this, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see, that's spiritual things, may see, and those who see may become blind. Now what's he talking about? Well, verse 40, Those of the Pharisees who, are, who were with him heard these things. And he knew that, they knew that he was talking about them. That they were really spiritually blind. Oh, they thought they saw. They thought they were spiritually enlightened, but they were mistaken. Well, they heard him say this, and they said, Oh, are uh, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. <laughs> but but they, they were blind, and their sin remains. But since you, you say, Oh, we see. They thought they saw, but they weren't then your sin remains. You're still under God's condemnation. You're still, you're still in your sins. You have rejected any spiritual truth that you may have gleaned, that you may have gotten. So you are spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. Now think about this. Jesus is holding back truth to those who have already rejected it. Why? Well, it's a It's a a point of judgment, but it's also a merciful thing because they are accountable for the truth that that they get. They're accountable for the truth that they understand. And Jesus is sparing them from a hotter place in hell than they would already deserve. That's an act of mercy, really. He was very kind in doing that. Now, Jesus was speaking in figurative language, or at least it seemed like figurative language to these disciples. They were not quite getting it. They were not, they were not quite seeing it. He was, his language was a little veiled, a little cryptic to them, because um, 
quite frankly, they were not going to be able to get it until the other side of the cross. Because he is thinking of talking about spiritual things that they would just not really understand right now. In fact, if you remember back, he already told them, he said, there's many things that I'd like to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. You can't understand them right now. And he gives them a few little things here, but I think they were just over their, over their head. I like what uh, uh, he goes on. One commentary said that uh, the difference here is not just in the, the words that they didn't understand the words of Jesus, but they didn't understand because of the situation they were in. They were on the wrong side of the cross for them to fully understand what Jesus was talking about. Now, he says, an hour is coming, though, when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. When my language is not going to be veiled to you, but I will speak, I will tell you plainly of the Father. Things, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be able to comprehend. You're going to be able to understand these things. I appreciate what MacArthur said. Uh, he said, uh, he said the disciples actually understood more of Jesus' ministry and his teaching after, after he left, when the Holy Spirit came down, than he did uh, then they did when, the, when they were with Christ. Now, Jesus wants to, to make one thing clear, though. And he's wanting to, to clarify one thing that, that is a, maybe a misunderstanding to them, and that's in verse 26. He says this, In that day, now, in the day when you'll finally understand these things, when I can talk to you plainly about the Father, in that day, you will ask in my name. So we're, we're pinning that down. They, there is still here on earth and they're asking or the requesting of the Father in my name, he says. Now, here's the clarification. He says, I, uh, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Now, Jesus wants to clarify this false impression that disciples might have that Jesus will speak to the Father on their behalf. Jesus wants to clear up the notion that the Father is disinterested in them. He wants them to understand that He is interested in them and that Christ doesn't have to go and plead their case before them or before the Father. They actually, He's going to point out, that they actually have direct access to the Father. Now that's something we take for granted. The the disciples, they wouldn't have had that perspective. But we do have that perspective. Now, our, from our vantage point, we understand that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. He was born of a woman so He could represent the human race perfectly. He, it was through His death and burial and His resurrection that He became our High Priest. And we, we can understand those things. He was, he was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He was perfectly God while being man, while being human. And that made him uniquely qualified to reconcile, now listen, to reconcile the sinful world to a holy and just and righteous God. He was able to do that. And that's exactly what men needed. Someone to represent them who is fully man and uh, be able to overcome sin. And he became the perfect mediator. He's the perfect mediator for us. 
And these men didn't really have that perspective. They didn't really quite see that. They were anticipating this kingdom that was going to be set up. And he was going to be the king. They were going to be his helpers and all this. And now he's, he's changed everything around. And he's talking about a, a mediator. And he's saying, now look, I'm, I'm going to be a mediator. And we understand, by the way, let me, let me go back. We understand mediators. Um, I couldn't just call up the White House and say, look, can I speak to Barack, please? I just don't think they're going to let me through. I need, even on this earth, we need mediators. We need somebody to, to go between us and even the president. You know, it's a, it's a privilege to talk to the president. So I, I don't have that privilege. It's a privilege to have a job. I can't just go up to the coal mine and say, hey, look, I think I'm going to cut coal today. Uh, you know, just pardon me and I, I'm going to just get a little bit and a little bit that I need and no, that's not the way it works, is it? You, you have to go through the process. You have to, you have, to have uh, uh, qualifications. And you have to have a commitment from both sides. Yes, I'll work for these wages. And that's, that's the way that works. It has to be uh, a legal process. And Jesus fits that, pro, that, uh, uh, that mediatorial ministry for us. Now imagine just walking up to the God of the universe. We're sinful people. We're limited. And we've sung some of the songs today just talking about our, our limitations. We, we're, we're miserable wretches. We're like flowers that just spring up and fade away. And, and we're, we're practically nothing. We cannot approach God, the God of the universe. We're sinful. He, he despises us in His universe. We've messed up His universe. We've fallen short of His glory. Do we think we could just come right into His presence? Jesus says, uh, Jesus says, yes. Jesus says, yes. But when, I like what Calvin said about this verse. He says this, this is John Calvin, 1500s. He said that when Christ is saying, when Christ is uh, said to intercede with the Father for us, let us not imagine anything fleshly about Him as if He were on His knees before the Father offering humble supplications for us. No. It was based upon the work of Christ on the cross. That's what made us. That's what qualified us to go right into the throne of God. And Jesus is just wanting to point that out. He's just saying, look, it's not that every time you ask a request, you have to talk to me and then I'll go to the Father. No, you have direct access to the Father. Now, folks, that is profound. It's something I think we take for granted. We take that for granted. I think uh, their approach to the Father is is based upon the work of Christ, not, and this is what Jesus is trying to say, not just based upon just the, the chain of command. Now, there's a, there's a misunderstanding I think the Catholic Church has, this idea that uh, God is somewhat indifferent to mankind, and, and He's very harsh, and so you wouldn't want to go directly to Him. Christ is, is he's a little bit more merciful, and, and so you could approach Him, and he's, you could pray to Him, uh, but yet even that, uh, you know, he's concerned about judging and judgment. And really, if you want to get anything done, if you want to have mercy, if you want to sh- have mercy from God, you ask Mary. Because Mary, now she's the most sympathetic one and she's going to 
She's going to take your request to the Father. That's not biblical, is it? That's not at all. And Christ is clarifying that up. You have direct access to God. I like uh, what uh, Leon Morris says. He says, uh, asking in Jesus' name is not a way of enlisting His support. See the difference? Enlisting His support. It is... It is praying on the basis of all that He is and has done for our salvation. His completed work. His completed work as for our atonement. The Son, He goes on to say, the Son does not uh, persuade the Father to be gracious to us. I like that. God is just as tender and compassionate and merciful to us as Jesus would be. Now the question, the real question, is why? Why in the world would the God of the universe pay any attention to these sinful little men here? Why would He pay any attention? Why would He answer their prayers? Why would He love them at all? And He gives us, a, he gives us the reason in verse 27. And I'm telling you, it's just going to go right over your head. For the Father Himself loves you. Folks, that is profound. The Father Himself loves me. The Father Himself loves you. Why? Because because you have loved me. These disciples had loved Jesus Christ and have believed that I've come forth from the Father. You believe that in my eternal existence, in other words, they, they had the, the right information about God or Christ. And he goes on to confirm that. I, I came forth from the Father and, and have come into the world. And I'm leaving the world again. I'm going back to the Father. He's just showing His deity and He's confirming, yes, you've put your faith in the right person. You've got the right information here. And what you see here is the perfect blend of everything coming together. They, they knew Jesus Christ. They had decided to follow Jesus Christ. And they loved Him. They were obeying Him. And Jesus, God responds. Responds to that. Um, Morris goes on to say, A right faith is informed. They had the right Christ. They, they had the right information. It has regard to the Christ's heavenly origin. I like what uh, Paul Tripp says. Now, you've got to listen. He says, faith, <clears throat> faith must engage the brain. So faith must engage the brain. And that's what's happened here. Their brain is being engaged. Who is this man? And they follow him. They commit their lives to him. And that faith and that commitment and that love, it produces a love within them. It says, Faith must be uh, faith must engage the brain, but true faith never ends there. It always transforms the way you live your life. It it results in love for Christ. It results in obedience and following Him. It results in passion, a commitment of life to the Father. I like that. Now I want you to see this principle. Turn over. Turn back to John chapter three, or say in John. John chapter 3 and verse 26. Jesus said this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, 
but the wrath of God abides on him. And what you see in this passage or in this verse is that believing and obedience are synonymous. He who, he who believes in the Son and he who does not obey the Son. Now the two are synonymous. And if you don't believe and obey, then you're still in your sins and the wrath of God is still laying on you. You're still under God's condemnation. Turn over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 21. He says this. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. How do you know you love God? Will you keep his commandments? He who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and will love him and will um, disclose and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. That's pretty clear. If you love him, you keep his commandments. The, the two are synonymous. And then back uh, just a couple of verses down, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come in and make our abode with him. But he does not he who does not love me does not keep my words. Now, what am I showing here? There's a synony- every, it's synonymous to, to believe in Christ, to love in Christ, to obey Christ, to follow Christ, to give your life to Christ. It's all synonymous. It's a package of salvation. That's what happens at salvation. When we commit ourselves to Christ, and we might not understand all of it, but that's the picture of salvation. That's what it is to commit our lives to Christ. And here's the key. The Father responds to that. And He says, you believe in My Son, you love My Son, I will respond and I will love you. I will love you. The word love that He uses here, the word love that He uses is not, uh, is not the word agape. It's the word, for, it's the word phileo. And that's that familial love. That's that love of compassion and love of uh, uh, emotion and affection. It's that parent's love for a child. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. God does for us. He, he loves us. He loves us in a special way. You say, well, and here's the problem. You say, well, well, of course God loves us. Right? That's, that's just our theology today. That's the American theology. Well, God loves us. Sure He does. Well, what's the problem? It's no big deal. The Jews think, thought the very same thing. Of course God loves us. Well, what's, what's the big deal? We're Jews. We're His chosen people. Of course He loves us. Listen, there's a certain love that the Father has for the world that He is patient toward the world, that He has a certain mercy for the world, and He has grace for the world, that He will sustain their life even when they're rebelling against Him, even when they're in their sinfulness. He'll sustain their life. But folks, their sin, His, uh, his wrath is still on them. He is angry toward them. But you know what? To those who believe... He says, I love them. It's a special kind of love, an intimate relationship that that God draws us into Himself. And He says, I love you because the way you treated my son. 
when the world the world just kind of takes that for granted. The world doesn't see that at all. They just think, oh, the world, you know, God loves us. We're all going to get to heaven. He's going to overlook sin at some point. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. And that's the theology that we've taught the world. But the real privilege is those who love Him. It says, because, because there is a condition. The Father loves you because you love Me. Because you believed in Me. <clears throat> now, how do we apply this? What do we say uh, to this? Uh, I say to my kids, uh, I love you. And, you know, maybe at first, when they were two or three years old, I don't know. Maybe there's a warm, fuzzy feeling. Maybe it was, you know, special. But now, not so much. And that's not the application, because that's kind of the way we, we think. When, when he's, oh, God loves you, and you, and you see all the Facebook stuff, and boy, God loves us. And it's kind of a mushy-gushy kind of thing. And I mean, those are there, and of course we want those things. I mean, that's, that's the way it's intended to be taken. But you know what? It's more than that. There's a confidence that settles in. My Father loves me. There's a rest that comes down into my life. I don't have to please Him anymore. He loves me. He, he knows my wretchedness. He knows my sinfulness. And he, he loves me. And what's Jesus saying here? He's wanting them to develop a relationship directly with the Father now. They have a, a special love by the Father toward them they need to have that relationship. Jesus Christ is just pulling them together. The disciples and God the Father. And that's exactly what we see. And it should result in these men just a, a rest. Just a confidence that God, hey, God loves me. God loves me. It's a profound thought that needs to just sink into our minds and our hearts. He loves the world, yes, in a general, generic kind of way. But folks, He loved you. If you believe in Him, He loves you as a parent loves a child. Let that sink in. And it's more than just a fuzzy feeling. And it results in our life of endless thankfulness because we know it just has to be by His grace. Endless obedience. Endless worship to Him. We give our lives because we know we're unworthy. And we don't want to just keep His commands. We want to please Him. We want to please Him. Well, that's the first one. That's the first one. The second one will go a lot quicker. But the first one is, God loves those who believe in His Son. He loves those who believe in His Son. And we need to understand that concept. We'll come back to it. But it's profound. Let me give you number two. We'll move quickly. The position of being united, that's the word, the position of being united with Christ elevates the believer to a spiritual realm giving peace and encouragement in a troubled-filled world. Look at verse 29. The disciples then, and there, there's, a, there's an aha moment here. I think they grasp a little bit more. The disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly, and now you... Uh, you're not using figurative language or figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things, and no, and no one needs, uh, no one uh, needs to question you. But this, by this, we believe that you come from God. 
So there's a, this aha moment. And they say, now we believe. Now we get it. And it's, and it's kind of like they go overboard a little bit. And their confidence level comes up a little bit. And there's a moment of clarity <clears throat> a little bit for them. And they think they have complete understanding. Oh, we've got it. Man, we don't need to know anymore now. And Jesus kind of pulls them back to earth. Confidence can get a little out of hand sometimes, can it? We need a little humility to bring us back down. I believe the Holy Spirit provides that most of the time. But you know what? Jesus knows their heart. He says to them, Jesus said to them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Listen, don't get too high and mighty. You're going to be scattered. You're going to reject me. You're going to, you're going to... But he knew their heart. He had already said, look, you believe in me. You put your faith and trust in me. And the Father knows that. He's going to respond in love. Even though you're going to fall away. Even though you're going to be scattered. And that's exactly what happened, folks. The... That they came to take Jesus away, and boy, those disciples, man, they ran. The reality of the whole situation. They just go to their home. They're scared. Their faith was not perfect, but it didn't have to be. They just knew had to know who they believed in, and that was the Son. Now, Jesus, again, is leading this conversation. He knows exactly where he wants to go with this. And look at verse 33. He says this, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Now he's, in this little verse, he compares and contrasts himself or being in himself with being in the world. In, the, in, in Jesus Christ you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. That's the comparison, and he's comparing those. And he says, now you guys are in me. You are united with me. You have a connection with me that cannot be broken. You are in me. And because you are in me, there's a peace that you have access to. You may have peace even in this troubled world. And Jesus says with confidence, I've come to overcome the world. I'm going to overcome the world. And he says it as though it's a, a completed act. That he has already done this. <clears throat> what does it take? What kind of power does it take to conquer the world? Uh, first of all, I was just thinking through this. This is the world system. It's a whole system of rebellion against God. Sin is the main power. It's the main motivation. And it's rebellion against God. And so what does Jesus have to do? First of all, he has to conquer Satan. He has to render Satan powerless. Look over at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we'll draw this to a conclusion here in a second. Colossians chapter 2, in verse 15, he says this. Paul reminds us of this principle. When he had, when he had disarmed the ruler and authority, that would be Satan, the rulers and authority, authorities, He made a public spectacle or public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through it. That's pointing to the cross. 
He had disarmed Satan. That's exactly If you're going to take down the world system, you've got to take down the ruler of the world, Satan himself. If you're going to take down the world system, you've got to get rid of death. And that's exactly what Christ did. The little verse that we read last week, Resurrection Sunday, he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, it says this, the last enemy will, will be abolishment of, of death. He will abolish death. And death has no real sting anymore because of eternal life. So he did away with that. Public enemy number one is dealt with. Death is gone because of Christ. And he overcame sin as well. We see this so clearly in 1 John chapter 3. I'll just read it. 1 John chapter 3, just to remind you of this verse. Verse 5 says this, And everyone who has this hope in him or fixed on him uh, purifies himself verse 5 goes on to say you know that he appeared in order to take away sin that's the reason he came down to this earth to take away sin and in him there is no sin and he conquered sin and he conquered death and he conquered Satan on the cross and he is victorious he is a conqueror And it was already completed in the mind of Christ. Um, The key here is being in Christ. Then you have peace. Even in the world you have peace because you're in Christ. Because of His life. He had a sinless, perfect life. We have His righteousness. Because of His death, we have uh, all of the sin and the punishment that should go on us went on Him and He took all of our punishment. And because of His resurrection, we now have eternal life. Because we are in Him, we are connected with Him, we will raise together one day with Him. The cross, uh, like what Morris said, the cross would seem to be to the outside world Jesus' total defeat. And He sees it as an accomplished victory over all the world is and can do to Him. He goes on to the cross, or He goes to the cross with no fear and gloom, but a great conqueror. He's going to the cross as a conqueror. Now these men just did not have the courage at this time. But you know what? When the Holy Spirit came upon them, when they understood these things, when the Spirit worked in their minds, they understood these things, they had great courage, didn't they? About 45 days after his crucifixion, these men, these men stood up in Jerusalem. It says they took their stand and they began to preach to the very same crowd that crucified Jesus. They preached and they said, you better repent. You crucified the the God, our God. You crucified crucified your own Messiah. And they called them to repentance. And these men stood with courage. They did. Now the real question is, is how do we know if we're in Christ? How do we know? How do you know if you're in Christ? Because that's the position to be in, right? For the courage and the peace that Jesus offers, how do we know? Well, it's, our daily walk has to reflect what's going on inside. And the verses that we read earlier, That's exactly what he says. What's going on inside must reflect on the outside. There has to be a love for Christ. There has to be an obedience and a following of Christ. If it is not real on the inside, it will not be real on the outside. 
We die to self. We die to self. Listen, I, I, I don't care how much theology you may know. It's not about theology. It's that theology being worked out in your life. If the theology, if what we know is not being worked out in our life, we have to question, are we in Christ or not? That, that commitment has to be there. That love for Christ has to be there. It has to be seen on a daily basis or we begin to question, has there been any change in our life at all? Are we, are we in Christ? Listen, if you can go and stay in your sin and be comfortable with that, then I question if you are in Christ. How can, Paul says, how can we who, sin, who have died to sin still remain in it? You can't bring Christ in with sin. The two are incompatible. Because Christ overcame Satan. He overcame the world. He overcame sin and death. Now, how do we pull this together? How do we apply this? Well, the the simple act of believing in Jesus Christ is such a profound effect that it it takes some time and and teaching for us to realize it. But at at some point, folks, we need to come to realize those things. Two things. That God loves us. And that's a unique, special kind of love. We need to live that out in our life. That has to be reality of our life. And then number two, that we are united with Christ. We have a a union with Christ that cannot be broken. And that too needs to be lived out in our life. I like what one commentary said. Believers today can find the same courage and conviction, or courage of conviction, when their faith and hope are in Christ. In Christ. We have to be in Christ. That's the privileged position. Now, if you're in Christ, we need to realize that privileged position, don't we? We need to come to understand that. Now, the Holy Spirit has laid it out for us clearly in the Word. I think sometimes it's just a matter of knowing the Word well enough to understand it. The Holy Spirit has given it to us. And I think the response should be is just just worship. When there's two profound truths like this, how do you respond? You throw up your hands, you don't understand it, and you just rely on God's grace, God's mercy, and you just give yourself to God and say, I don't know why you love me. I don't know why I'm in Christ. I don't understand those profound spiritual realities, but I embrace them and they come become a part of my life. And then we we can sing with the songwriter who said, when peace like a, a river attends my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, either one, when I'm at peace or when I've got the sorrows of, of like the sea crashing down. Either one, whatever my lot, He's taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That, that's a person that gets it. It's a person that understands. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this profound truths. These profound truths. Help us to understand the position that we have in Christ. Help us to understand that You love us. Lord, those are, those are concepts that are way too heavy for us. They just go right over our heads. 
It takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit and time to understand these things. But Lord, help us to understand them. Help, help them to grasp our life and, and, and take a hold to our daily life. That people see a change in us. And Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We're definitely undeserving people. We can't approach you without the shed blood of Christ. Well, Lord, if there's anyone here today, I pray that they would turn to you. May they plead to you, repent of their sin and come to you because you are a God who will love them, a God who will bring them into the family and just share such privilege on them and such heritage and such benefits on them. Lord, what a, what a wonderful thing it is. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.